now, here's a schoolhouse rock jam honoring Washington, D.C.'s fairy godmother, the one and only Ben Carson. Take it away. In the 17th year of 2000, I'm told Ben Carson helped us see the true immigrants of the U.S. got a ride in a slave ship for free. He taught us that free healthcare for all is worse than slavery. And got Betsy DeVos to spell it out, but she got it wrong after W.E.B. And Ben and Betsy put these principles down on paper and made their own amendments to the Constitution. It's been helping us run our country ever since then. The first part of the Constitution is called the Preamble. They didn't agree with what our founding fathers wrote, so they wrote their own. It goes like this. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, disqualified Muslims to run for the presidency. Censor college campuses, remove the federal judges who vote for marriage equality, and let trans people use the party, and let's keep all black people because we are such a united country because we are such a united country hello cnts welcome back to wrct 88.3 fm I'm your host, Arielle. Hey guys, it's Daryl, and this is CNT, your favorite for millennial news broadcast. This just in, Tommy Loren has been suspended from the blaze for her pro-choice comments on The View. So we want her to know that we're hiring. Tommy, if you ever want to get out of the sunken place, hit us up. But before you do, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. And stay tuned to CNT, politically aware, but not always correct. Before we get into the story of the day, here's a little message from our sponsors. Do you dread the hollowness and endless rejection of modern dating? Are you sick of reaching out to girls only to have your penis heartlessly rebuffed? If so, forget about human women and download Belinda the Nude Sending Robot to your smartphone today. Belinda the Nude Sending Robot is a sexy AI that will text and Snapchat you nudes. Yep, that's the whole pitch. Still not convinced? Take a listen to some of our very satisfied customers. G.I. Billy says, It gets real lonely on deployment, and the other guys are always bragging about their wives and girlfriends, so I figured, why not download a girlfriend? Belinda is smoking hot, and even though the program just cycles through the first five search pages for boobies, the guys always respond the same way. Damn! Businessman Trent says, Last year, my wife caught me soliciting nudes from my secretary and almost tore our marriage apart. This year, I'm quitting women and hitting that hoe, Belinda. Now I'm getting five to 50 times daily, and my wife's happy because it's not cheating. It's a robot. Lester, your computer science TA says, Siri's obsolete. Now I jerk off to Belinda. 
Oh, and did I mention that Belinda loves penis pics? Whether you're packing an anaconda or an inchworm, Belinda will reply to your penis pic with exclamation points and a random series of encouraging emojis, including winking face, sweat droplets, and okay hand. Belinda won't block you and screenshot your message to laugh at with your friends. Belinda doesn't have friends. She's a robot. Belinda, one, real women, zero. Belinda the Nude Sailing Robot is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play for $2.99. For just $2 more a month, install Belinda's exclusive kink mode and she'll add an in, oh yes, daddy, install update 304. Aura, pee on my hard drive, you little beep. For your sexting pleasure. Downloading Belinda grants Robot Sex Inc. and our affiliates a worldwide royalty fee and transferable license to host, store, use, display, reproduce, modify, adapt, edit, publish, and distribute your penis pics. Oh, and we're working on a collage display in our Bay Area office, so if your penis is especially weird, it may join the collection. It's all in the terms of service, but you'll never read that. All names in Belinda the Nude Selling Robot testimonials have been changed because, quote, uh, I don't want to be that guy, you know, unquote. Robot Sex Inks does not incur robot liability for any sexually transmitted viruses or STVs you may contract from Belinda. Welcome back, CNTs. Now it's time for our main story, food conservation. I know, I know, you're already bored. It's not as sexy as an inflated weapons budget, but it's just as relevant. Americans are more wasteful with food than we are with our votes. In fact, we waste almost as much food as we eat. The Guardian reports that we throw away 60 million tons worth of produce annually, and that's a third of all food produced in the world. According to the EPA, while it still exists, wasted food is the single biggest occupant in American landfills. Surprisingly, not Trump. So why are we so wasteful? Well, for one thing, food in America is cheaper than anywhere else in the world. Studies show that while American consumers on average only spend 6.9% of their income on food at home, Italians spend 14.5% and Mexicans spend a whopping 24.2% of their income on food alone. Just for a point of comparison, 14% of the average American smoker's income is spent on cigarettes. That's more than twice the amount the average American spends on food. And why is food so cheap? Two words, corn subsidies. Subsidies are a sum of money granted by the government to assist an industry so that the price of a commodity may remain low or competitive. Corn is just corn. American corn production has tripled in the past 40 years. Since the 1930s, the U.S. government has been protecting farmers against unpredictable hardships, like the Dust Bowl or the Bowling Green Massacre. Now, I know none of you dusty garden tools were alive during the Great Depression, but that drought devastated middle America's farming industry. So now U.S. taxpayers pay about $20 billion every year for agricultural subsidies and insurance costs. Billions of dollars go into corn production subsidies, and our farmers have injected growth hormones into our fields. So when it comes down to it, we're all children of the corn. To this day, you don't actually have to grow any crops to be treated as a farmer in America. According to the Government Accountability Office, between 2007 and 2011, Uncle Sam paid $3 million in subsidies to 2,300 farms where absolutely no crops were grown. And between 2008 and 2012, $10.6 million was paid to farmers who'd been dead for over a year. So how is it that a country with so much food production and waste can also be a place where over 42 million people live in food-insecure households? Well, for one thing, good, healthy, fresh food is expensive, especially if you work at a minimum wage job. 37.5 million Americans live below the poverty line, so any major or minor unexpected expense could mean that you're not putting food on the table that week. 
Some low-income communities live up to 40 miles from a grocery store with fresh produce, or any produce at all, and that's what's called a food desert. Cheap retail operations thrive in low-income communities because they sell low-cost goods. And when it comes to food, low-cost items tend to be high in fat and low in nutritional value. So basically, while you can afford a bag of Cheetos, it doesn't mean you're food secure. If you're thinking, well, then just use food stamps, that is not a solution. The average monthly food stamp benefit is about $86 per person and $200 per household. And you're not even talking about the price of gas to get to that grocery store 40 miles away. That's just a third of what the USDA recommends for an average family. So while the program might reduce hunger, it does not eliminate the problem for a family living below the poverty line. This is usually where people say, I work hard for my money. Why should I help freeloaders eat when I'm trying to provide for my family? First of all, check your privilege. Second, note that regardless of how hard you work, human beings still waste enough food to feed every starving man, woman, and child on this planet three times over. There's no reason to let all that precious energy go to waste. According to former Trader Joe's president Doug Rauch, grocery stores routinely trash produce for being the wrong shape or containing minor blemishes. And that assumes these products even reach the stores. Atlantic writer Suzanne Goldberg quoted an anonymous worker in the industry that vast quantities of fresh produce grown in the U.S. are left in the field to rot, fed to livestock, or hauled directly from the field to landfill because of unrealistic and unyielding cosmetic standards. Are we really about to let people die of starvation because of cosmetic standards? Are we really that petty? To get a better idea of how we CNTs could help, we invited two food conservation fellows of the Repair the World program, Lydia Bastoul and Max Hill, to the show. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you for having us. So what is Repair the World? Repair the World is a national nonprofit based in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, Detroit, and Baltimore, and we work in food and education justice. We have a year-long fellowship program in which the fellows work uh, with directly with service organizations that already have a good footing in Pittsburgh and in the cities that we work in. And then also we work to mobilize volunteers and to get people involved in these issues. So you kind of explained it to me like a switchboard. I'm taking individuals that I'm meeting with, Uh um, potential volunteers, and I'm trying to plug them into different organizations to fit their needs, the needs of the organizations and the needs and wants of the individual. So Repair the World works with education justice, but you guys are food justice fellows, right? So what is food justice? Well, food justice is this idea that everyone deserves the right um, to healthy, nutritious, and culturally appropriate foods. So we work with partners like 412 Food Rescue, Just Harvest, and Grow Pittsburgh. I personally work with 412 Food Rescue and Just Harvest, and then Max works with Grow Pittsburgh. And we both work with the uh, Jewish Relief Agency, which packs boxes of food for people who are food insecure. And why is it so relevant to be concerned about food insecurity these days? It's not just these days, it's been going on for centuries. I mean, even back to ancient Egypt, how financial power was gained was actually who controlled the grain stores. There's a a story about ancient Egypt. The pharaoh was able to store food for seven years before seven years of famine. This, This is actually not only biblical, but also historical. Happened several times. The pharaoh was actually able to garner significant amounts of power because he held all the food. And this still happens today. Uh, We see communities, uh, largely low-income, often minority communities, uh, systematically denied access to food. It comes in the form of food deserts or food apartheid areas. It is places not serviced 
by grocery stores, often only serviced by corner stores that provide high sodium, high fat content snack foods. We have a lot of food deserts in Pittsburgh, which mm. some people would be surprised to, to find out about. I think Oakland is actually a food desert as well. I mean, there's a small corner grocery store, but there are not major grocery stores servicing this area. And one of the things that 412 Food Rescue aims to do is to end uh, hunger by ending food waste. They save food from being thrown away from grocery stores and places where it's going to go to waste and then deliver it directly to organizations. And it's different than a food bank because there's no like storage space involved. They, they get volunteers to deliver it immediately. Um, if you think about the fact that 40% of our food goes to waste and one in seven people in Allegheny County are going hungry, if you think about those statistics together, I think it's pretty disheartening and uh, pretty scary. I think there's a lot that we can do um, to fix that. And, and 412 is definitely at the forefront of that. You guys are located in East Liberty, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And we talked a little bit about how that community has been facing gentrification for several years. How do you guys see your role in that as a social justice organization uh, participating in the gentrific gentrification of this community? Do you feel that you are part of that community? And if mm -hmm. so, how are you contributing to it? Sure. So uh, we actually have constant conversations about gentrification. Um, none of the fellows li living here and living in East Liberty are from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely at the forefront of our minds. We realize that we are coming into a community that we uh, might not know, you know, exactly what issues they're facing. And we shouldn't pretend that we do. Um, mm -hmm. We are always having conversations with our community partners and with our um, service partners and our service organizations about what, what needs do they have that we can fulfill. Um, but we don't try to solve problems for issues that aren't really there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it helps just to have that constant posturing of uh, knowing where we fit into the community. Mm -hmm. We're in the fourth cohort. So this is the fourth year of Repair the, the Repair the World Fellowship in Pittsburgh. And we definitely feel that we're a pretty ingrained part of the social justice community, definitely a part of the Jewish community. Um, but it's going to take a, a long time for us to be a part, really truly a part of the East Liberty community. Mm -hmm. I think it'll take at least a decade for us to really feel a part of that. And it's a, it's a slow process, but we're we're working through it, you know, having lots of conversations about it. You're both white, and I'm wondering about the white savior complex, right? So we have all of these privileged white kids who want to help, mm -hmm. right? And that's, valu that's valuable, uh, but shouldn't swoop in mm -hmm. and try to take over for a community that doesn't want or need your help. So how do you guys combat that mentality? What do you think is a white savior and how are you not one? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. It's also something that we think about a lot. One of the things that we talk about is that we are trying to create a community environment of service. So we don't like one-time service opportunities. I definitely see the value in like packing, you know, peanut butter sandwiches one time with a, group, a big group. Um, but we prefer that service become a part of daily life. Mm -hmm. And we want everybody in the community, everyone in Pittsburgh to be involved in service. So I think that's one thing is we're, we're not just coming, working with service organizations and then getting out of here. We are right. trying to create an environment in which everyone is involved in service. Everyone uh, has, a, has a part in it mm. and it's everyone's community. We don't just focus on service. We do our best to also pair learning, service learning. Mm -hmm. um, with it, especially with our one-time service opportunities. We have a tremendous program bank that we're able to draw from, constant articles online that we're able to draw from in order to have people frame the service that they're doing, you know, what sort of context they're working in, thinking critically about the service they're doing, you know, what is it? Why is it necessary? What are the historical issues that have led to uh, whatever you're working on? So let's say that I am, I'm, I'm not saying this, I am, 
Uh, <laughs> I am a, a student who wants to help, doesn't have a lot of hours to commit, mm -hmm. uh, recycles, but doesn't do much else in terms of food conservation. Guilty of waste, definitely. What would you say to someone like me or me about what I should do and how I should engage? There are a million and one ways to get involved. Um, we always love talking about this because we have so many opportunities available for people at every level of um, experience and, and uh, level of hours they are willing to give or are able to give. Um, one of the great things we do with 412 Food Rescue, we have a partnership with Zipcar, um, and you're able to actually use a Zipcar for an hour and uh, rescue food for us, which is really awesome. We have a lot of educational programs and social events. We do a Cocktails with a Conscience um, every other month where we discuss a certain issue. Max and I run the Pittsburgh Farm Crew Potlucks once a month where we talk about issues like uh, we've, we've done one on fermentation, aquaponics, and different skill shares like that. And we also do brunch and serves, um, which are one-time service opportunities. Uh, a lot of them are going to be gardening-based um, where we serve you brunch and then you get to serve with us. I'm curious what uh, your reading list is for our listeners because it sounds like uh, we can be severely misinformed about food injustice and food sovereignty. We actually received a reading list before we started the fellowship. One of the books we read is called um, Fair Food by Oren Hesterman. Another one was more education justice based called Our Kids uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. I pretty regularly read Civil Eats. Afroculinaria is run by Michael Twitty. He's a black Jewish chef. Dan Barber wrote a great book, The Third Plate. It's a great storytelling book. He's also a chef in New York. Of course, Michael Pollan is an excellent writer. He has several books out now. My last question for you guys is why this organization is called Repair the World. Why should someone want to repair the world? I mean, I would flip that question on its head. Like, why not? Um, it's very Jewish of you to answer a question <laughs> with a question. <laughs> yeah, as you said, Repair the World is a Jewish organization founded in the uh, the concept of tikkun olam. Mm -hmm. um, but there's an alternative, um, which I kind of like, is uh, tikkun can also mean heal. There are issues with this world. You know, I just mentioned the unseasonable temperatures that we're facing directly affected by global warming. Um, systematic racism is real. And so there we have a system which is broken or sick, and it would be immoral of us to continue living in the world without fixing or healing it. I, I don't know why anyone would want to live in, in a stagnant place where, nothing, where no change is happening, where no one's striving for equality. I don't think that's a world that most people would want to live in. I think if we think about improving ourselves, why wouldn't we also want to try to improve the world? Thank you so much, Lydia and Max, for coming in to speak with us. You can follow Repair the World on Facebook or on Instagram. And Twitter. And Twitter. And uh, you can check out more about them at werepair.org. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks again, Lydia and Max, and to Repair the World for the amazing work that they're doing. Now it's time for our favorite CNTs, Yaya and Nene, answering some questions from our callers. Take it away, ladies. Hey, Nay. You hear Trump's not going to the correspondence dinner? Yeah, I'm trying to ghost him. Trump treats the media like an annoying ex. He's like, stop calling me media. I'm dating alternative facts now. <laughs> You're on with Yaya and Nay. What plagues you? One in six people are homeless and hungry in this country, and I'm one of them. I need your advice on how to protest food waste. In 2012, we wasted enough food to feed 70% of hungry people, so hunger is clearly in the back of the country's burn book. Am I too poor to protest? Or nah? 
if you don't fight for your rights, how can you expect anyone else to? But he's homeless. He gets a pass. I'm not looking for a pass. I'm looking for a way. Good, because silence just supports the oppressor. Mm, that quote may look good on a Pinterest page, but in real life, that's unfair. Sometimes your silence is because you're just trying to take care of yourself. Is being able to fight for a cause a privilege? And therefore, should I just give up now? I don't have anything, much less privilege. Nah, because the very reason for fighting is because of a lack of privilege. And it's offensive to suggest that those who risk jail, death, and unemployment to fight for those causes are privileged. But does privilege have to be a threat? Or can it be a tool if we can acknowledge it and use it for the greater good? But if it is a privilege, which I'm not saying it is, so what? Whatever resonates with you, you should fight for. You don't really mean that. Yeah, yeah, I do. You don't. Because you wished more people supported the Black Lives Matter movement, don't you? But black people only make up 14% of this country. So shouldn't we be more understanding more people aren't marching for black life? That's 85% that don't have a direct connection to the black struggle. That is completely different. Is it? Don't you wish more people who don't relate to a cause would still be on board to support those who do? Likewise, our caller wants more people to care about hunger. What are we even talking about here? Is this a pissing contest on which cause is more popular? I'm just saying with the Women's March, we both went. It was amazing, right? But that march was successful, arguably, but not only because a huge amount of white women decided to care about this one. Because without the majority support, can a cause really be successful? So, going back to our caller's question, how does he fight for a cause without privilege and the support of the majority? Especially when those hungry people are largely considered lazy liars who are looking for handouts. You can organize. You march. People will catch on. On a basic level, we can't organize. We can't start a hashtag. We don't own computers, much less social media accounts. We can't make signs. We don't have money. So what do we do? How do we get the word out if people don't value our words? You make people hear you. Says the girl with the microphone and the platform. But sir, I'll be insensitive. Yaya has a point. You have to make people hear you somehow. Months before Martin Luther King Jr. died, he organized the Poor People's Campaign. The mission was to demand economic rights for poor people of all races. Even though he died before it happened, the Christian Southern Leadership Conference and masses of poor people still did it. And they occupied the National Mall. Every day they camped out in tents. Ha! I have a tent. My friends have tents. We can just move our temporary homes to a visible place. Yes, the allies will come. Or you have to get in their face and invite them. I agree. Because to suggest that a lack of resources prevents someone from having a voice is absurd. With that mentality, black people would have still be slaves. And the living characters on The Walking Dead would be, well, dead. Everyone has a voice. Everyone can be heard. And that's a privileged thing to say. And that's a negative thing to say. Everyone has a voice. Not everyone is privileged enough to be heard. You know what? I guess... I've been so angry about my own causes these past few months, I never stopped to think that other people are hurting too, for different reasons than me. So, caller, it starts with us. We're your ally. You asked us to fight, you're doing it right now. It's like music. There's some super weird EDM on Spotify, but someone's always going to listen. No matter how niche or mainstream, it's still music people care about. Not everyone has to be Drake to be a musician. Who's Drake now? Our point is... We hear you, and it only starts with one. No one has absolutely nothing. 
There are organizations that are already fighting this fight. We'll make the connections. We can help you organize. For example, you have a tent? We have a radio show. Barbara at Michael's has paper and we can use for science. And Derek at the Back Alley Pharmacy always has poison if it gets too real. Nay. What? I'm just saying we have useful resources between the two of us. Thanks, Yaya and Nene. That's it for today, guys. We'd like to take a moment to shout out the fire writers and contributors who made today's show happen. Daryl Bright, Alicia Etnoff, Ariel Hoffmeyer, Erica Jackson, Katie Pine, Javier Spivey, and Ariel Zucker. Find us on iTunes under CNT and catch us next Tuesday at 5 on WRCT 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Ariel. And I'm Daryl. And this is CNT, reminding you to wake, wake up and, and stay, stay woke. woke. Later. Later.